So even on your quote, listening tour, you're both listening and learning, and you need to do that genuinely, or the organization will sense right away if you're just asking the question, but not really curious. This is a window where your stakeholders will often tell you things that they might not be willing to tell you a year or two from now. They know that you're coming in fresh and that you don't necessarily own the decisions of the past, and they tend to be quite honest with you. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was one of our guests, Carolyn Dewar, sharing advice for new CEOs, the focus of today's episode, on how incoming CEOs can make a strong start in the role. Carolyn's a senior partner in our San Francisco office, and she founded and co-leads our CEO excellence practice. She's also a co-author of last year's New York Times bestseller, CEO Excellence, the six mindsets that distinguish the best leaders from the rest. Joining Carolyn today is Kurt Strovink, a senior partner in our New York office and the co-leader of our global CEO initiative. He serves as a counselor to CEOs across industries and is a co-author with Carolyn of the article, Starting Strong, Making Your CEO Transition a Catalyst for Renewal. Carolyn and Kurt, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. This is super. Thanks for having us. Uh, it's really, I'm looking forward to the conversation. So today we're going to be focusing on advice for new CEOs, but I was hoping we might first start by discussing some of the research that you did for your CEO Excellence book and how those insights inform the views in your article on the topic of CEO transition. Carolyn? Super. Let's dive in. This is very much grounded, as you would expect from McKinsey, in really rich set of both quantitative and qualitative data and research. We have a whole database of CEOs around both their performance and their leadership. And then in the recent CEO excellence work, we had the privilege of sitting down with about 70 of the world's best CEOs as judged by their performance in role with Satya Nadella, Jamie Dimon, Mary Barra, really understand what were their stories? What were their lessons learned? What do they wish they'd known? all grounded in this you know, initial question of what is the CEO role anyway? It is a unique role and lots of people talk about it being a lonely role, but it's also one where you're the ultimate integrator, right? Across setting direction, aligning the organization, your leadership team, your board, your external stakeholders, and your own personal time and energy. So we had that in the back of our minds as we were really diving into this question specific on the new CEO, how do you step into this extraordinary role and do it well? What does that look like? So it's grounded in what we know around CEO excellence and what it takes to do well in the role long term. But we had so many questions and so much interest in what do I do first? How do I start? That played out even in all these conversations with the CEOs that we talked to. 68% said that the role wasn't what they thought it was. And these were big leaders. You know, most folks have had big roles before, right? You've been a COO, a CFO, a PL leader, a geographic leader. There's something unique about the CEO role specifically that is somewhat unexpected, right? You're, you're the ultimate face of the company, the ultimate integrator. It's not just your old job bigger. It comes with new responsibilities. It comes with new stakeholders that you're navigating. And then you pair that with the second statistic where 90% say they wish they'd managed the transition differently. Now, it's easy in hindsight to say, I wish I'd, I wish I'd done things differently. And 
you know, everyone should show themselves some grace. You're navigating this for the first time. But I think these CEOs we talked to really wanted to share their lessons learned and their wisdom, right? What are the things they wish they'd known? How would have they not just acted maybe differently, but thought differently? What's the mindset? What's the way to think about this transition? Because you do only get one chance to make a first impression and to hit that, you know, set that, that tone early in your tenure and what that looks like. Thanks, Carolyn. Um, Kurt, can you take us through how the best CEOs use those early months to get their tenures off to a really strong start? Absolutely. And when we step back from all the different CEO transitions that, that we've been you know, humbly part of with, uh, with CEOs around the world, there's a couple things that really stand out. And Carolyn talked about a few of these things, which are the fact that people often feel unprepared for the role, um, even upwards of 90%. Uh, we could also have added that a third of the people or more uh, feel that they're actually struggling in the first 18 months at some point in their in their journeys. And so there's a real there's a real notion of this being an important moment to get right. Uh, it, it sort of reminds you of that old quote, you know, well begun, half done. I, th- I think that that notion really comes through when you talk to a lot of CEOs. They feel at the start is really, really important. One of the things that we've seen, though, when we look across these is, is that there is a profound um, opportunity uh, for institutional renewal, not just personal renewal as part of CEO uh, transitions. So part of the reason this is, uh, this is such a, uh, an opportunity is it's difficult, right? It's not the same as the previous role, as Carolyn was mentioned. Almost all CEOs have to adjust to the fact that their, their voice and their communications are immediately much stronger than they were before, and they have to learn to re- regulate that. There could be additional people that were potential candidates for, for being a CEO who are, who are now members of the senior team. They have to learn how to work with peers in new ways. Um, and they have to uh, be able to shape agendas. Um, they might ha- they might learn that there's there's crises or risks or things like that 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 need to be addressed, uh, and and they're in a crisis mode sooner than they expect. That's often something we see in CEO transitions. There's a certain there's a certain theory of how it's going to lay out, and there's the action. The world happens. So there's a number of things that are being navigated at once, and everybody is looking very closely for the the, the tone that's set, for the way that the person's going to behave, for the kinds of things that they value. And so there's this, this incredible uh, moment of, of opportunity. We also think that uh, just from psychology and group psychology, uh, at moments like these, there's an unfreezing of organizations. Uh, usually there, there's a little bit more constancy in the way organizations develop. But we think that CEO transitions in particular are moments uh, of unfreezing. And they're therefore moments of, of, of institutional renewal, where if you're self-conscious about it, if you're thoughtful about how you step through this, you can actually help organizations to reflect on who they are, uh, to take a step back to maybe reaffirm some things that are valuable about the culture and innovate and change some things that that might be part of of the next chapter. That's great. So it sounds exciting that organizations use this as an opportunity for both the CEO and the organization to raise their aspirations and renew. Are there any downsides or pitfalls that new CEOs need to be extra careful to avoid? Yeah, I think there's there's probably a number. I mean, and Caroline, I encourage you to jump in too. But um, I think, for example, one is oftentimes CEOs will misunderstand or not fully calibrate uh, what their mandate is. What have they been given, uh, you know, as almost sort of the marching orders from the board? And sometimes that mandate isn't always offered by the board exactly and clearly. Uh, sometimes it has to be discovered uh, or it has to be even negotiated in some way in the, in the early stages. So I, I think that can be a failure mode. It can be an opportunity depending on how it's approached. But 
I would also say being too solicitous about a board, like showing up with a notepad and trying to execute on everything the board says as if they're a boss in a traditional sense is another failure. You have to get that, that right balance between leading and being open to channeling the energies of the board and really wanting their help. But on the other hand, not uh, just taking notes and trying to execute on what would otherwise be a very difficult set of things to do. And we, we do see new CEOs in particular um, kind of move between those poles. So that can, that can sometimes be another failure mode. Sometimes there can be a, you know, a person on the senior management team uh, who is fundamentally opposed to the direction that you would like to set. And, and you need to think about how you move, move that person to another role or sometimes out of the organizations. And sometimes delaying that decision can be another failure mode in the early going stages. Uh, so those are just three examples. There are, there are many others, but Carolyn, what would you add? Absolutely. Maybe one one that I would add, and Kurt, this is based on research you led a number of years ago on you know, outsider CEOs versus internally promoted. You know, the reality is both can do well. But one of the things outsider CEOs you know, have an advantage on is they bring a fresh eyes view, right? And they tend to move more boldly, more quickly, to, you know, challenge orthodoxy, challenge assumptions. And how, whether you're an externally hired CEO or an internally promoted one, can you take that outsider perspective, right? Whether it's people-related, strategy-related, execution-related, it is incumbent upon you to sort of take take a fresh take. And, and how do you do that in a way that's productive? I think that's a great one. We, we do find that internal CEOs often will suffer more from some of the political realities or uh, kind of path dependence of former initiatives or things like that than external ones. That's a that's a great point to add, Carolyn. So, Sean, I don't know if that, that answers your, your, your broader question around failure modes, but there's many. I also think maybe adding one or two others, sometimes getting the listening and, and, and kind of assertion balance correct is important. I think you do need to be open to new ideas, especially at the outset. Sometimes people do come in uh, with either too much of an assertive position uh, without fully understanding the context, or they shy away entirely from any early points of view on what they think, or at least what they'd like to learn about the directionality of the company. And sometimes either one of those extremes, I think we also find can be failure modes in certain, in certain contexts. Thank you both. Well, let's turn it now from the negative to the positive. What are some of the common ingredients that you see for successful CEO transitions? Obviously, generalizing about CEO transitions is complex because there's so many different contexts, and we don't mean to pass over all of those contexts, but we're distilling out of what we've learned four things that we think are durably true uh, of different situations. But the first is around not making it about you. This is a very hard thing to do. Uh, why is this? Because everybody is coming to you and talking to you as if it is about your preferences, as if it is about your choices. And the entire organization is rotating towards you as a CEO and focusing on what do you want to do? How do you want to meet? Um, how would you prefer to do X? How would you prefer to do Y? And there's a lot of focus on you as an individual CEO going through this uh, transition. And we think that that can distort reality. And in particular, Brad, uh, Brad Smith, uh, I recall, had one quote that was quite nice here. We said, everybody gets a couple inches taller and the jokes get funnier the day you become CEO. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to the fact that you get focused on and everything you say seems to have greater wisdom than it did you know, 24, 48 hours ago. That's a common phenomenon. Everybody should be prepared for it. And part of what we what you need to do is learn to almost see the, uh, the, the world objectively as best as you can. Sometimes that involves pulling together a process of, of discovery with different people who might be challengers. Sometimes it, it, it involves getting external perspectives. And it just involves a 
different mindset that you take as a leader on not confusing yourself with the office. The other thing I would say, back to my point about this moment of institutional renewal, is that there's a profound opportunity to getting the organization to think about itself and what it needs to do. And so focusing on what the organization needs, what does this organization need at this point in time, not what are my preferences as a CEO, is a way to lean into that. And it's much more value creating uh, for everybody around you. This notion of kind of a certain servant leader, leader mentality, I think guides CEOs in transition really well when you can adopt it. The, uh, the it's about me questions, these are all natural. They tend to be things that occur to us. What's my legacy going to be? You know, what, what are my expectations of other people? How do I get people who compliment my weaknesses because I have certain strengths? Uh, you know, what's broken today, et cetera. Uh, how do I get the organization on board with my vision? All these are questions that aren't bad questions, but they can be reframed in ways that focus more on the organization and less on you individually. You know, what organizational purpose do I serve? What's this moment in time? What does the company need from me? Going from how am I going to be successful personally to how are we winning as a company? Are there any differences in how you'd advise a new CEO who was externally hired as compared to someone who was promoted from within their organization? Yeah, I think the thing that's important as an outsider is to make sure you're understanding the culture of, of the company that you're inheriting, that you're, that you're surprising people perhaps on the upside of, of understanding what that culture involves. Maybe even you have a theory or a reinterpretation of what it could do for the next phase. And your discovery process is part of showing that you're more of a student than people would have expected of the unique circumstances, context, and culture of this company. I mean, that is something that I think when external CEOs surprise on the upside there, they, gain, they earn a tremendous amount of early trust. And you're trying to obviously better diagnose what you have in terms of people. You might have to go deeper in the listening tour. You may have to be mindful of understanding how the firm works and, and doing more ride-alongs and visits and those types of things. I think for an internal CEO, your challenge is, is, is in part not to be captured by the past and by ongoing initiatives, maybe some of which you, <laughs> you may have had a hand in creating. And you have to somehow create uh, an objective view. And oftentimes you're, you need to create some, some approaches to do that, whether it's through challenges or external views. You have to find some way to step out of the norm and the, and the current business speed and context because you've been so much part of that. And then you also need to think, about how, secondly, you evolve the relationships you have with, with people who are now peers, uh, or they were peers, I, I should say, and are now reporting to you. Thanks so much, Kurt. So uh, one question that comes to mind is, is how long is someone a new CEO? What's the typical onboarding period? And, and was that the period of time that you were looking at when you were writing your article for new CEOs? So, you know, we, we, we think about this, oftentimes a lot is made of 100 days, um, and we don't think that that's a terrible focus, but I think we'll get further if we think about one week, one month, one year. And the reason I say that is because a lot of things, even in the first week, uh, while it's too early to transition, you send signals very early by what you're doing on the listening tour, by, uh, by a, a brief statement about the process and what's happening, or two or three questions that, you're, that are on your mind that you're looking to, to learn more about. The first week is actually important. The first month where you start operationalizing a lot of these things, and people might see you in a few contexts, whether it's a town hall or something else, tends to be another important moment. But I think you have to think one year too, because there's a lot of learning and a lot of uh, discovery and then playing back to the organization, the new direction, and then starting that process. And so we, we really do see the transition is stretching into the first year as opposed to 100 days. And if we were to pick you know, uh, different milestones within that, we'd probably say one week, one month, uh, one year. 
I love this notion of one day, one week, one month, one year limit, maybe. And one of the CEOs we talked to talked about how you set the metabolic rate for who you're going to be as a CEO in your tenure in that first year, right? And, and he raised it in the context of he had waited quite a long time. He knew there was a big industry shift coming. And he, but he was taking over a very storied institution that had been around for many, many years. And he was hesitant to make big changes in his first year. He wasn't sure he'd earned the right. And he waited until years two or three to try and enact some much more pivotal change. And it was interesting, the organization in year three wasn't actually willing to follow him because they'd already decided that's who you're going to be as a CEO. We saw you in your first year, you were slow and steady and kind of keep it, you know, keep the trains running. And we didn't see from you any bold vision or, or suggestion that we were going to take a radical pivot. And so when he tried to do it later in the tenure, it was hard to move the organization because of their perception of him as a leader. And so there is that notion to think about as well, right? How are you going to set the tone so that the organization knows how you think and who you are as a leader. And even if the actions come later, they had the pre-warning, they had the clues early that that's where you were taking them. And we've heard that from a number of CEOs, especially who are taking over really well-run institutions that don't require, aren't in crisis and don't require radical change. You know, and they think about, well, what can I do early to at least signal that I'm willing to make tough calls, that to signal that I'm willing to do hard things so that when I might need to do those later on a strategic level, um, it, it doesn't come as such a surprise. Right. Well, thank you, Carolyn. So as a new CEO, you should focus on the institution rather than yourself. That's number one. What else do you have to be mindful of as a new CEO? The tension that Kurt teed up of you know, listening and acting and how do you do both? And, and you do need to do both in parallel in your first few kind of months in role. So even on your quote, listening tour, you're both listening and learning and you need to do that genuinely or the organization will sense right away if you're just you know, asking the question, but not really curious, right? So how are you genuinely listening with the mindset that you might learn something new and that it's important while at the same time, you're kind of testing some of your ideas or validating your insights, you're running all of those things in parallel as you're doing your quote kind of listening tour, right? This is a window where your stakeholders will often tell you things that they might not be willing to tell you a year or two from now. They know that you're coming in fresh and that you don't necessarily own the decisions of the past. And they tend to be quite honest with you, right? There, you know, there might be some hesitation because you're the CEO, but listening to not just your employees, your customers, your regulators, your other stakeholders, your board, how do you broadly canvas your, your stakeholder group? I love this, this um, question. I think this was another one from Brad Smith at Intuit. What am I not hearing that I should be hearing? What are people not telling me that they should be telling me? Right? It's a chance to really draw out from those stakeholders some of the messages that maybe have been mute for a while and that maybe they weren't telling your predecessor. But now that there's this breath of fresh air, they're willing to kind of take the risk of sharing something that they've been observing or noticing or an opportunity that they see. A parallel piece we've heard too is while you're asking questions, you're also gathering facts. 
right? So a lot of new CEOs find it really helpful to put together an almost independent fact base of what is our starting point, right? It, it's surprising when you ask people for numbers, you might get different sets of numbers from different groups or different um, storylines of performance and how are we doing? What are our risks? What, what does it look like? And you do need to gather multiple inputs so that you can have an independent point of view of what is it you've inherited? What is the starting place in terms of performance, cultural health, stakeholder relationships? Where do you see opportunities? Where do you see threats? But are you, are you grounding yourself in the facts? Are you asking probing questions? Are you starting to kind of test and learn some of these, some of these ideas as well? Right? Are you, are you pushing on things that maybe don't make sense? Are you digging and understanding really, you know, what's going on? This quote from Ed Breen, you know, when, when you go into a company, you need to take a good clean look at everything, right? The metrics, the cash conversion, all the metrics, all the view. This comes back to this notion of taking a fresh eye perspective and one where, as Kurt said, external CEOs have a slight advantage because they can ask the dumb questions. Everyone expects them to just be kind of probing and learning. As a, as a promoted from within CEO, we would really strongly encourage you to take that same lens even though you've been part of the institution, right? Take a fresh eyes view, the people, the business, the culture, the, the pivots, just because you've done something in the past doesn't mean you can't in the future. Mary Barra is a great example of this. And she was promoted from within. In her first budget cycle, you know, they came to her again with the, the business case and the, the resourcing ask for a country that they'd been in for 25 years. And GM had never made money in that country yet they'd always invested. They always just assumed they needed to be there. Here she was, a promoted from within CEO, now the boss of people that had been her peers, you know, a few weeks before. And she called time out. And she's like, wait a minute, why do we do this? Why do we continue to double down in this country when there's no line of sight to ever making money? And everyone sort of looked and said, well, we've always done this. Of course we would do it. It's like, wait a minute, just because we've done it till now, it doesn't mean that's how we have to proceed going forward. And they ended up withdrawing from that country. It was quite a bold move. And she said no to a number of things. And it's part of saying no that enabled her to then reinvest in the new priorities she was setting, right? So when she thought about biggest needle moving actions, an investment in electric vehicles, she saw that was the future of where we needed to go. And she was only able to do that because she had the courage to say no to some things and stop things that they were doing. So she had the resource to invest in where to go. That was one of her early kind of bold moves that really set the tone, not just of the strategic direction and where they're going, but also her courage as a CEO. Sometimes the bold moves are people related. Sometimes they're, they're culture, right? Satya Nadella not only kind of signaled a move into cloud and other pivots, but also a huge cultural shift towards growth mindset. And that was what he was going to stand for in his tenure. We do sometimes get the question from CEOs saying, well, the company I took over is doing fine, right? Should I upset the apple cart for the sake of it? No, right? We're not saying go and do a bunch of radical things if they don't need doing. But even if it isn't a strategic pivot, is there something where you can take a courageous step to show who, the, who you'll be as a leader because that's who the organization needs of its leader in the next phase? And, and what will be some of those early moves you make that people can look at because they don't know your intention. They only know what they see. So what are some things they will see early to pivot and, and show who you're going to be in your tenure?
You talked about how CEOs who make moves earlier in their tenure tend to outperform those who move later. What's your advice for an executive who's not yet been designated the incoming CEO, but is really likely to be the heir apparent? Are there any moves they should make prior to that announcement? Yeah, absolutely. It can be it can be a tricky period. We work with a lot of executives in that period through the through their transition. And there's sometimes the you think you're going to be, but you're not yet. And then there's sometimes the period where the board or the current CEO has told you you will be, but no one knows yet. And how do you how do you make use of that time? I think it's a terrific time to do a couple of things. One, you know, early steps on the listening tour. Obviously, you can't be too obvious about it, but there are things that people will tell you before you get the official nod, right? So are you meeting with customers? Are you having conversations at industry events? Are you having conversations with peers and employees? It's a wonderful opportunity to listen, learn. People will tell you all kinds of things that they might not tell you as soon as you're designated. And then how are you, how are you investing in your own development and learning, right? What are the things you might need to do to kind of round out that final mile of being ready? Right. Are there enterprise priorities that you can help lead so that you really get to know what it takes to drive change across the business? Are there, you know, other other you know, parts of the business you need to learn and you need to quickly get a primer and get up the learning curve? You can really invest in your in your own learning. Um, I think actually taking action in moves, maybe be I'd be curious your view, Kurt, but probably be a little more hesitant right until you have the the official mandate but it can be a wonderful period of learning and a number of the CEOs we spent time with had that gift of that transition period um to really get themselves ready on the personal front too right get in shape get your calendar management in order all of those good things right are are just smart for the long haul i would just add um a couple other things just to supplement that great list that, that carolyn mentioned one is do your job don't forsake the day job, make it successful, do not campaign. Yes. Uh, the number of CEOs or hope, hopeful CEOs who do find some way to campaign, et cetera, I, I think it just weakens organizations and ultimately I'm not sure it's that successful. So really delivering in role is super important, number one. Uh, number two, I think you can also look to, back to this point about what does the organization most need and can you role model a kind of collaboration first among peer leadership Again, not for, for the purposes of pointing out your own leadership, but just to make the top team function better and better to get after the real things that the company needs. And the last thing I would say um, is I find that people who have followership from different parts of the organization that don't, do not report to them directly is a very big indication. Boards will often notice that. They may not look for it, but it'll, it'll bubble up in some way that will matter. So think about the network you have, not just within formal chains of command, if you will, but across the organization, are you horizontally leading, not just vertically leading within an organization? So now we've covered two of the areas that new CEOs should focus on. What's the next one? Go for it, Kurt. So I, we wanted to talk third, maybe about nailing first impressions and interactions. And then, you know, I think it starts with this, this notion of dialing in emotionally to the people that you're meeting, uh, either for the first time, if you're coming from the outside or from, from uh, in a different way for people that you know from the inside, if you come uh, from the inside as a, as a CEO. And oftentimes we've talked, in fact, Carol and I wrote an article in 2020 about the effect of leadership for CEOs during COVID. And one of the things we observed was that a lot of the CEOs were finding that they needed to be more emotionally connected and they needed to have to-be lists, not just to-do lists. And you know, there's, a, there's an ongoing thought to that here for transitions, which is get into 
understanding people's why, what really moves them, what is the what is the thing that makes them run to work, what are the things that you could understand across a population that you might be doing a listening tour with, where the energy is. And I think that'll also help both to diagnose the starting position, the morale of the company, those kinds of things, but also quite frankly, to pivot and to, to get people on side to, as part of the journey. So dialing in emotionally is really important as a CEO. Um, it's probably more important in pandemics than other times, but we think it's, it's evergreen. And that's something that's really important in the transition. People are looking for that, even if they don't know that they are. They're looking for whether you're approachable. Um, they're looking for whether or not you seem to be interested in them. They're looking for whether they feel comfortable with you when they interact. Those kinds of things are all important. And that's what we mean by understanding people's why and dialing into that. There's a second idea around this, this single narrative idea. And we, we just see a profound opportunity for new, new transitioning CEOs to begin to put down some markers. Um, of things that they want to return to and have the, the company live into. And sometimes those are phrases, they're catchphrases. Uh, sometimes they are areas. Uh, sometimes it's something around growth. Sometimes it's something around being a business builder. Uh, sometimes it's, it's learning to take the strengths of the, of the previous era and build on those in two or three ways. Sometimes it's stages of a process. It's, you know, up until this point, we've worked to become an investable business. Check. Now it's about becoming a strategically advantaged business in these couple areas. But think about what the frames are that you're going to begin to introduce. And most uh, CEOs that, that transition well pick two or three of those that they really invest behind, certainly within the first, first year, if not even the first month. Uh, a third thing is, is around candor and authenticity. It is uh, not a role to be a politician in. Uh, it is one to, to disclose, to say something about where you come from, your background. You're, you find yourself reintroducing yourself to the organization, even if you're from within. Without manufacturing it, think about that authentic biography that's coming out. A couple of things that are just true about you and sharing those often calls forth the same kind of sharing that will help you learn more from the organization as a whole. So we, we, we often encourage candor and directness. Uh, it's also something in a CEO idiom that works really well compared to other roles. <laughs> so um, that's a third. And then finally, it's just investing in moments of truth. These will naturally assert themselves in the course of the calendar, but it can be an investor presentation. It can be a board meeting. It can be a town hall. Um, it can be other things that will, that will happen, but treat those like really important, over-prepare for those. Greg Case at Aon felt, for example, he walked into a situation where he basically had to do a very important meeting that was within the month. And he, he basically held to it because he thought that, that it was on the, uh, you know, it was on the, uh, calendar already and couldn't be changed. But I think he looked back on that and said, if I'd, if I'd been more tenured, I would have decided to not do that meeting until I was ready. So you do have some choices of when these milestone events happen, and you need to be live to the fact that some of these things may be negotiable in terms of time frame. So we just throw that out there as one idea on the moments of truth. And similarly, the way that you establish the intimacy with board members is really, really important. And, and, and when I say that, I mean individually, not just collectively. Often we see a huge trend across successful CEO transitions of getting to individual board members individually, often uh, you know, traveling to where they are and getting a chance to have a more informal conversation. That bleeds through to all board members who've met and it ends up creating a much better basis for a long-term relationship. Thanks, Kurt. So if you're a CEO who was promoted from within, how should you think about engaging your former peers to determine who's really in sync with your vision and who isn't, especially if you need their buy-in, say, to push a big change or transformation agenda. 
What would be your advice there? Or, or do you have any tips just on working with the runner-up candidates who now report to you? Yeah. I mean, well, a couple thoughts just on the the the, the runner-up situation. I think that's a very contextually dependent. I've seen cases where, you know, somebody is unhappy that they didn't become CEO. It's difficult for them to make common cause with the, the chosen CEO's agenda. Uh, out of respect, that situation idles for a while. It doesn't get dealt with, and it ends up being unhappily kind of a, a divorce of sor- sorts. And that person leaves the you know the company in two years or a year and a half or something like that um, because they weren't on the same page. So there needs to be a clearing conversation about really what you need as a CEO and whether or not this is a good fit for for them. And I think that has to happen early. It, it should be done in a way that's that's thoughtful and generous and understanding, but also resolute about the fact that there is a path ahead. A couple other things I would say is I'd be wary of creating um, a situation where, you know, I'm the outside person, you're the inside person, for example. I mean, that can work in some cases, but usually that's a, fa- that's a kind of a simplistic division of labor. It can sometimes cut, you know, the overall CEO agenda. And sometimes the board wants to retain somebody who is a close second and will be, you're going to have to have a negotiation or conversation with the board about that person's rightful role. And you might find yourself trying to establish and, 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 and kind of, you know, the, the mandate of the CEO role as well with this other person. So it does reappear as a consistent thing uh, in transitions. Maybe I know it wasn't quite the question, Sean, but another flavor of that is if the retiring CEO is staying on as a very active executive chair, um, in some cases, not even moving out of the office, right? Still coming to work every day. It's another flavor of sort of an awkward could, could be awkward or can be incredibly powerful, but you have to have the honest conversations as Kurt described to talk about roles and how it's going to work out. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, and to your point, there, that was another question that I wanted to ask. How do you best leverage the departing CEO's expertise, especially if they become or stay on as the board chair? Kurt, do you want to take this one? I mean, I'll offer a few things. I think uh, having seen some new CEOs and former CEOs negotiate this, I think it, it'll depend a little bit on where that former CEO and now board chair is in the course of their own life. People have either moved on and started to commit themselves to things even beyond being board chair, and they have a robust set of things that are happening, or they haven't yet. And depending on their stage and their own evolution, you'll find, I think, people spending more time or giving more space. So I think it's important to diagnose knows that. I think it's it's also important to have a, a conversation that says, you know, I'm going to be looking for your input as I will in multiple you know board members. Uh, but I also what what do we do at certain points where we have a difference of opinion? I'm going to act you know to the best of my ability as a CEO to make the make make the decision. Uh, and and you know I hope you'll support me in doing that as I know you would have uh, you know when you were in this role. And I learned from you something like that if 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 you came internal. Uh, I think is a way to kind of create the space and the expectation before you get to a point where there's a, a, a strong difference of opinion. Third is maintain very strong relationships as well with other board members. I've seen more than one case where the, the, the previous CEO and board chair is still very relevant, but there are certain things that they just do have a harder time hearing and appreciating. <laughs> uh, and that the rest of the board, though, is with you and gets. And so, um, you know, I think you can also forge relationships with other board members in a way that the, the overall balance of the board will be more with you. That sounds great, Kurt. Thank you. Carolyn, do you want to take us through the fourth ingredient of a successful transition, which in your article you call playing big ball? First, what does playing big ball mean? 
Yeah, let's hit, let's hit off the the fourth piece, which is to play big ball, not small ball, right? Which really is this whole notion of how can you do the things that only you can do as a CEO, right? There will be an unending amount of pulls on your time, things people would love for you to do, but how do you focus on the things that are highest impact that you really should be spending your time and energy and focus on? What does that look like? Most new CEOs in the first few months are drinking from a fire hose, right? You're trying to do everything, especially you're trying to learn, you're trying to build relationships, you're trying to make moves, you're trying to make decisions, especially if you're doing any kind of strategic pivot or shift in direction. Often new CEOs will say they feel like they're carrying the weight and sort of being the one trying to keep all that together for the first few months. You can only do that for so long, right? At some point, every new CEO kind of hits a bit of a wall where they realize the operating model they've had for the first couple of months just can't continue. You need to get into an operating model that's effective for you and the organization. Then, you know, Ajay Banga, you know, for him, that period lasted a couple of years, right? Where he was really just trying trying to be the integrator of everything and drive it forward. And he tells a story of waking up. He'd flown to Singapore. He woke up at sort of six in the morning. He had 2,000 unread emails. He had promised his team he would always answer every email personally. He just realized the wheels fell off and he, and he couldn't possibly do all of that. And frankly, it wasn't serving the organization either because he'd become a bottleneck for a lot of things because everything was having to funnel up through him. There's three different levers that we heard new CEOs reflect on or, or uh, experienced CEOs reflect on in their new tenure. The number one regret when we ask unaided, when people say, what do you wish you'd done differently? Is they say, I wish they, I'd moved on people faster, right? It just comes up time and time again especially as they think about their period as a new CEO. And why is it that they wish they'd moved on people faster? Not just because of the broad importance of talent, but these jobs are too big for any single human to do, right? These organizations are too complex. The pace of change is too much. It is a team sport, right? And you need to quickly have, starting at the leadership level, a leadership team that is rowing in the same direction where you're aligned on the direction that you're headed. You have kind of high quality execution amongst yourselves. You're working well together. And how do you do that quickly? So that by the six month mark, I would say you, for the most part, want your team in place. Who's going to be your team. There might be a couple of laggards, but that should be the team that you can look at and say, okay, we're the ones taking this forward by the 12 month mark. You really want that team operating in a rhythm together in a way that if you weren't there that day, the team and the team meeting would continue and they would be they would be able to lead the organization largely in its day to day. And so thinking about the talent that you need, both your leadership team, do you have the right people who are both role modeling the, the skills you need, the alignment you need, the leadership behaviors that you need? What does that look like? Even beyond the top team, what are the pivotal roles where you need to have A players further down in the organization because they're just too important not to have A players. And can you focus some of your early talent decisions on getting great folks in those roles that really matter so you feel like you can lean on them? So talent is, is a big, big thing. I think your own personal time management is another biggie, right? Most of the CEOs that we've spent time with, I'm actually surprised how intentional they are about their time. They have various versions of color coding in their calendars or, or deals with their chiefs of staff and their, and their executive assistant. 
where they understand what are the priorities that I should be working on. And then they go back each month and say, did I spend time on the things that I said were important? Did I actually spend the time and put my quote money where my mouth is on the priorities that I said as a CEO, I need to be spending time on? What does that look like? You've got to get a handle on it, right? If you, if you don't know where you should spend your time, it's hard for your team or your organization to help you with that, right? But if you can articulate, here's my five or six priorities, or here's the mental rubric for how I'm going to think about where I need to lean in or not, then your team around you can help you execute that. But, but you do need to have a point of view of where you'll spend your time. And it keys into this last part on the overall operating rhythm, not just for you as a team, but, but or for you as an individual, but for your team and the organization. This is maybe one of the regrets for insider CEOs. Often they think they have to inherit the operating rhythm of their predecessor. And you don't, right? There is an opportunity given the new priorities and where you're taking the business, where you want the culture to go, to reset, you know, what are the inputs we're going to look at, right? What are the indicators of whether or not we're winning and making progress? How often do we have to meet? How will we make decisions? Who will be involved in those decisions? Clarifying that rhythm of how the place will run so that decisions are made efficiently with the right information by the right people over time, and that you're going to have enough visibility that you know where you need to dive in, right? Where there's hot spots that maybe require your intervention, but you've got a flywheel going where the organization is running in, in a productive way. And I would say most of the CEOs didn't get it right from day one. They all kind of looked back and said, oh, I wish I'd done some of this sooner. The sooner you're intentional about each of these things, the more sustainable it'll be for you and everyone that you're working with. And, and you'll be able to allocate your time to the highest and best use activities that only you can do. As we close out, I'd love to get your thoughts on just uh, one other challenging scenario that new CEOs may face. This is when um, you don't have a unanimous agreement within a board uh, you know, on a specific area of change that you're trying to drive as CEO. So what are some of the ways that you can gain that agreement and that consensus and alignment within your board? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why you were hired, right? And so the board ultimately made the decision to bring you in. And so presumably there are folks on the board who are excited about that and that understood what they were choosing in making that selection. And so I would sort of ground yourself in, in those early conversations that you had, what was it that you talked about in terms of what your mandate would be and what that looks like? Having a great relationship with your board chair is just uh, so critical, not just for this issue, but broadly. Most CEOs we talk to talk to their board chair weekly, right? It's a relationship they really, really cultivate. And that person can be a wonderful ally in actually bringing along other board members. So one idea is how do you talk to him or her about the mandate? You jointly have a vision for where you're taking the company. And is there something they can be doing one-on-one -on -one with some other board members to bring them along? I mean, other ones in your early part of your listening tour, we didn't touch on it, but one of those first board meetings is actually to come back to the board and share, here's what I've learned, right? to make sure everyone has a shared fact base of what you've inherited, what actually is the state of the organization. They may have been given a rosy picture from the outgoing CEO, right? And so how do you make sure everyone understands the state of play has that shared fact base? That's another good one. And then investing with the board. It is a journey. You can't just drop it on them one board meeting that you want to, you know, take the company a whole new way. How are you bringing them along? They are a stakeholder group that needs to have enough context, enough information, enough learning that they're brought along and understand 
you have to think you're thinking about this business 24 seven, right? They're engaging in it in the board meetings. Kurt, I don't know what Maybe three other ideas, just just briefly. One is I would think about, particularly for that question of the the board or owners doesn't want to move to a different approach, and that's part of your strategy. Think about ways to curate and 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 create learning experiences for the board. Uh, sometimes go and sees can do that. Um, sometimes introductions to another company, another industry that's facing an you know an analogy of a problem can can do that. But I think sometimes our role, you know, as CEOs broadening and creating learning opportunities as opposed to just litigating a certain perspective is a very valuable uh, thing to do and works well with boards. Second, um, think about creating scenarios in advance. So if the world changes in way A, then we're going to have to think about A prime. If the world ends up being B, then we're going to think about B prime. In other words, staging things so that by the time the board gets there with you and the world does change, you have much more uh, kind of implied authority because that's been something that's been in the dialogue for longer. I've often find that the staging is another way to con consolidate a consensus for something. You may not be able to get it in round one, but you can get it in round two or three if you're sufficiently thoughtful about the scenarios you know, of the future and leading the board in a process of, of, of thoughtfulness about that. Third, I love uh, Carolyn's point about what you've heard in the organization. Think about salient facts that really challenge orthodoxies that you can offer back to the board or the owner. I think that's that's super important. And then ultimately, Eventually, you should be also shaping the board's future composition, the capabilities and skills you need, the people who aren't on the board that should be. That's not your first act, day one, clearly, but it is something you graduate to, and, and that creates additional throw weight and, and uh, ability to kind of change and align the board around strategy. Awesome. Carolyn, Kurt, this was really interesting and fun conversation. I very much appreciate you taking the time with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's been terrific. Thank you for having us. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to share uh, feedback or an idea for a future podcast, you can email us at inside the strategy room at McKinsey.com, or you can share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. Many thanks to all of our listeners who've already reached out and rated and reviewed the podcast. We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback. Please do keep them coming. And if you'd like to listen to additional episodes, we encourage you to follow the series on your podcast player, where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. You can also visit our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available at mckinsey.com ITSR, which also includes written transcripts of more than 120 past episodes. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up on our practice insights page at mckinsey.com slash SCF. You could follow us on Twitter at MCK strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the strategy room.